Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's Podcast. I'm Terry Patar. I lead the Jane's Intelligence Unit. I'm joined by a member of my team, Carl McGrawty. Hello. And by Joe Robinson, who is CEO of Defence at Improbable. Welcome, Joe. Hi, nice to speak to you. That's great to have you on. It would be great, Joe, for anyone who's listening who hasn't heard of Improbable before and or maybe actually has heard of Improbable, but heard of you in a different context and maybe isn't conscious of what you do in defence, etc. For you to maybe give an introduction to Improbable, a little bit of your background and what your role is there currently. So I'm Joe Robinson. I joined Improbable around about five or six years ago now. And I joined Improbable from Ministry of Defence. I did um, I did 10 years in the MOD in the, in the British Army. And I came across to Improbable just as we had started to look at applications for our technology beyond beyond gaming. So Improbable relatively better known as a as a gaming business or a games technology business. But the way that we would describe ourselves overall is a virtual worlds company. So in the defense and intelligence space, we build this unique and sovereign capability for defense called a synthetic environment. This is essentially a, a very realistic sort of virtual representation of any real operating environment, which enables users to train, to plan, to test strategies in a virtual world um, before you then go and implement them in the in the real world. So we utilize some of the same technology that we use to power unique multiplayer gaming experiences and bring that that capability to defense. So so that's really what we what we do in on, on my side of the business. And you know we're 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 active across the UK, across the US um, and across and across NATO at the moment and and growing very quickly. Just for those who aren't aware, when you talk about building those virtual worlds or synthetic environments, in practice, what does that look like? And you know, how do people experience it when they come to use it? Yeah, it's a good question. So, so I suppose, I mean, synthetic environments, these sort of these these virtual worlds, as we describe them, they're capable of synthesizing the sort of vast complexities of of the modern operating environment. So there's been much that's been written about the fact that the world's sort of, you know, increasingly contested, increasingly congested, and 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 the threats that we're all facing today and our governments are facing to protect us, they're more diverse and, and I suppose, interconnected than, than they have been for a very long time. And synthesizing all of this complexity, um, which includes things like bringing together cyber effects and activities that are happening in the space domain and information effects and sort of the stuff that you see in hybrid warfare scenarios, this enables defense to firstly understand the complexities of of that world and then really to try experiments and to train and to plan and to even orchestrate operations in a virtual environment, in a synthetic environment, before they go and do it in the real world. So our technology is, is, um, is essentially a platform, a software platform, which enables the creation of different applications and solutions um, so that users can consume these worlds, these synthetic environments um, through different ways. So it could be, you know, one end of the spectrum, you know, what is a, essentially massive call of duty for the military, um, you know, with, with lots of uh, soldiers experiencing this deep, immersive, multi-domain operating environment to improve training outcomes and to really experience the realities of, of hybrid warfare in a way that, that hasn't been possible before. But at the other end of the spectrum, you know, we have we have much more analytical applications and solutions that are running on the platform, which are supporting policy design and development, operational decision making and planning, much more on the sort of 
analytical and the and the scientific simulation end of the spectrum, which is able then to run sort of thousands of choices of action over and over faster than real time, and then to to pull out the the nuances of those choices and then help defense and, and the intelligence community make better decisions. So this sort of full spectrum of, I suppose, really preparedness activity from training to wargaming to policy design, even things like um, test and evaluation, you know, testing new capabilities, new equipments in a virtual world before you then go and have to deploy them in the real world, you know, which, which should hopefully help defence and, and government make better choices overall across these these different areas. So a sort of single platform that stitches together all of this, all these models and, and, and data and produces these synthetic environments, which then different users can interact with in, in different ways. You know, I kind of feel myself clutching for a whiteboard pen when I'm trying to explain this. I was going to say, it's, it's one of those things that I suppose on a, on a podcast is difficult to describe, whereas yeah, if yeah. you were doing it visually, it'd probably be a lot easier. Yeah, you can't use slides or... Uh, yeah. No, no fancy little video <laughs> sort of demonstrator. Um, you know, it's, it's a new concept. It's a new way of thinking about the issue of really getting after what, what in the UK they call multi-domain integration. So being able to understand the multi-domain operating environment, being able to integrate lots of users together, all drawing on the same synthetic environment, and then being able to build a collective response and to, you know, to collaborate and, and, and deliver sort of better outcomes. So by looking at it from a perspective as a software company and and thinking about it as trying to solve some of the foundational issues of bringing these very realistic worlds together and, and but trying to do them in a very efficient way a way that is reliable and cost effective and and scalable that's really where you you know we really start to push the boundaries of what's been possible before and, and that's what makes it really exciting joe um i don't know if you read a couple of years ago, it came out now, um, How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk. Really interesting book, breaks it down quite neatly, talks about running multiple probabilistic models, just using Excel spreadsheets and a couple of macros. And actually, the guy who wrote the book, I forget the name now, he, um, I think he put up on his website some of those probabilistic models in Excel spreadsheets. I imagine yours are much more complex than that, and so they should be because cybersecurity is something that you can model in a in a far more predictable way than i don't know uh, asymmetric warfare in uh, you know in a foreign country but it's amazing to me because the idea of being able to run a scenario change a reporting line for a subordinate unit change a capability um, assign one unit to another and then or to a to a different part of the hierarchy and then run that simulation again and see how effectively that change is implemented or what it means when that change is implemented is an incredible thing to be able to do. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and we, you know, we have the capability to deliver probabilistic models using Bayesian inference. You know, Thomas Bay has been around for, for you know, hundreds of years, this, the, these techniques of surfacing the probability and outcomes. And actually, you know, the, the defense and national security user is quite used to sort of understanding and comprehending, uh, comprehending probabilities, you know, that they're quite used to thinking of things in terms of error and likelihood of, of things going well. So we found that capability is quite important. But I think the, you know, part of the old, the kind of the old adage of modeling of any model is that, you know, all, all models are wrong. Um, but but some are useful, you know, and often and often um, said phrase, but it but it's incredibly apt and incredibly appropriate. Part of the reality of bringing together vast uh, numbers of models and ensuring that they are sufficiently 
validated and verified and, and, and calibrated to support specific questions means that we need to surface the the errors in those models and we need to to ensure that, that the system synthetic environment and this is one of the great advantages of looking through the the problem of of effective multi-domain integration through a synthetic environment is it, it isn't a black box you know it isn't an excel spreadsheet model which is just pumping out an, an answer it's a a virtual world which has an audit chain you know, you can understand where the outcomes have come from and we're able to surface the error and the unknowns in that decision making. You know, it's all about ultimately empowering the decision maker. It's about giving the the human decision maker, whether it's, you know, the soldier training, the policymaker designing policy or the, you know, or, or the, the kind of, you know, stressed J5 planner in the operational headquarters, you know, trying to run these choices of action to understand outcomes. It's about giving them the tools to understand that world more um, more effectively, but also empower them to make better decisions without giving them an answer that is um, without explainability, you know, that has no background to it, no audit chain. So you, you need to be able to combine both, you know, a highly reliable bounded statistical model, something that, that, you know, probabilistic modeling, Bayesian inference can can provide with you, but recognizing that that outcome can be quite intoxicating for a decision maker because they feel very confident in the answer. When in reality, the answer is very often, as you've, you know, as you said, a little bit more nuanced than that. And that therefore you've got to be able to bring together heuristic models, you know, those of individuals who are subject matter experts in their area. Say, look, I know the I know the mathematical model is telling me this, but I know this system and I've, you know, I've had the the oh, yeah. understanding this for a long period of time. So sort of combining those elements together, surfacing the error, and then providing synthetic environments, you know, that help a user understand their problem space and make better decisions. That's really what it's about. It's about, you know, enhancing that decision maker and, and improving the you know, improving the human in the loop, you know, that still has agency, you know, they can still decide whether they want to follow what the environment is suggesting or whether they want to follow their their gut. Um, And and that's something that's that's really important, frankly, to, you know, to technology like this. And it enables us, I suppose, to, you know, to not sort of face this crisis of legitimacy that often plagues AI um, as a sort of purist capability. I have so many questions for you. (laughs) <laughs> um, in fact, I have so many questions that even my questions have questions. Um, so at, at Jane's, we have a, a similar issue with a tremendous amount of information collection, trying to rationalize it, trying to turn it into data sets, entitize it, create some sort of ontology that allows us to understand the information that we have collected. It strikes me from what you're saying that the estimate of language, the probabilistic aspect of your um, of your models aren't as pressing a challenge for you as the confidence levels so you know i remember writing reports where i put you know i have um i have a high degree of confidence in this assessment um based on the fact that you know whatever um you know i'm struck by things like less than three percent of twitter being geolocatable in any meaningful way means how do you actually have any real confidence that you are able to make date, time, place assumptions about the data that you're picking up, knowing that you're only really relying on less than 3% of the, t- the entire data set available. And, and the confidence levels thing is, is something that I, the first question I had for you, um, there are many, many others. Yeah, I, you, you know, you're, you're, 
you're spot on. I mean, the, the, the you know, you, there, there are different levels of building confidence, right? There's building confidence in the software and making sure that, you know, that the, the software is is reliable. You know, it's easy to use, um, you know, that it's somewhere that people actually go to to, to support decision making, that the user enjoys using it and, and it and it's giving them something that they that they haven't had before. So, you know, it's coming back to making things faster, making things easier, making collaboration more effective. So. Confidence is lifted at a basic level by enhancing that level of collaboration, you know, by getting many minds and many thoughts contributing to it. Then it's about surfacing the assumptions behind the, the models and the assumptions behind the decisions. But also, you know, and we've been developing this um, framework, we call it the explain and review framework with defense scientists for, for a couple of years now. So a pretty unique collaboration with, with DSTL in the UK to ensure that we can, can really surface a lot of this uncertainty and make that very clear to decision makers in what they're seeing and giving models a, a history. So any model that's that's um, incorporated inside the synthetic environment, it has what we call a passport. And within that passport, it has, you know, specific characteristics, you know, who owns it, where's the data come from? How, you know, is this a model that's suitable for training and, you know, supporting training outcomes? Or is it something you're going to want to start to rely upon for, you know, frankly, for life and death decision making, in which case that's a higher level of of certainty and, and, and a higher level of, of importance when it comes to surfacing the, the error within that. So it's important to note, you know, as a company, we do a little bit of the modeling ourselves. You know, we have we have some some fantastic and you know hugely capable you know academics and 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 fantastic what we call model engineers inside our business that do build some of these models. But actually the power of approaching this problem of you know how to understand and respond to this horrendously complex world is to bring some of the best models together from others. Part of this confidence level and, and building up confidence as a system is recognizing that as one company, we can't be an expert in modeling everything, right? We can't be an expert in modeling, you know, power grids or, you know, come back to James, you know, enemy movements and, and you know, troop ontology and that, that kind of thing. We've got to work with the best in, in the business. And so we have an ecosystem of partners that all sort of contribute to these synthetic environments. So we pull models from industrial partners, from academic partners, from within defense, and they come with their own credibility. And then we stitch those together and, and do some clever things with, with the cloud through our platform to ensure that the world scale is reliable and, and that it's consumable by our, you know, by different users. Um, so part of that confidence is also recognizing that you're you're trusting us as a software company to be the broker, really, and, and the integrator of those capabilities and, and to deliver the, you know, the software confidence, I suppose. But also recognizing that, you know, you're, you're relying on the best information that you have available. And of course, there's challenges in finding that and accessing that from different government departments and the like and bringing that together. It's often a policy and a you know, policy and security and culture problem, actually, as opposed to a technology problem that, that finds, you know, has issues here where I think you can enhance that that confidence. I, when you mentioned the passports, I, I, I said, wow, that's interesting. And I thought it was recorded, but I was on mute. Um, so so it, it didn't interrupt your flow, which is great because I think that's really interesting. And it strikes me that actually rather like any intelligence analyst rather like what Jane's goes through the relationships between the different entities, how one affects the other, whether it's the terrain and the vehicles that are on it, whether it's, you know, international air travel and air defense networks. These are really complex models in themselves, but understanding how they interact with each other, that's a particularly difficult thing. And I suppose if you're coming from 
from a, a gaming simulation background. Um, I'm just thinking back to my wasted teenage years with Far Cry and other things. Um, <laughs> Not the, wasted. The, we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't say well, that. Well, no, I don't think they. I don't think they were. My mother, however, might disagree. But, <laughs> but it's the the understanding that there is a damage engine sitting there trying to work out. Okay, this action has been taken by this ind individual in the game. How does that relate to something else? is really quite a fascinating challenge to try and get your head around. And if you're able to take models from other organizations that understand that and can explain the, the real world um, interaction with, with you know, one unit and another, then, um, then we'll first start. Then it saves you reading a whole world of doctrine and joint service publications and other things, which I imagine you do anyway, because you've kind of got to model the structures of how an organization works if you're going to give it a playground to work in yeah i think that's a very astute observation and the one of the interesting insights i suppose that we that we've gained from our work over the past few years with defense ac across the us and the uk is that actually a lot of the time you can gain you can gain insights and you can gain improvements i suppose you know it's all about ultimately becoming better prepared making better decisions you, know, you can gain improvements you can deliver improvements to users with actually pretty simple models you know, models and, and combinations of models that, that aren't hugely complex when it comes to sort of really looking at the kind of deep scientific accuracy of capabilities. And I can give you an example, you know, if you're able to bring your unit together and to train, so I'll talk about I mean, military training here, right? So you can train in a, in a virtual environment where you're, you know, when your high explosive tank shell, when it hits a broadband unbundling hub, that the internet goes down. Uh, or that when the building collapses and it lands on a power line, that the power grid goes down. And it may be in certain countries, you're looking at dual use capabilities where the military and the intelligence community are using the same broadband networks and they're using the same power networks as the general population. Now, those systems are relatively well understood, you know, how a broadband network works or how a, you know, how a, how a power grid works. But just being able to, to deliver the functionality inside a synthetic environment, which is one of these sort of pillars of, of our kind of our platforms, USP, this idea of, of increased realism. And what we really mean by realism is realistic effects and, and, and a realistic environment, representative environment, essentially, of, of the real world. If you can just start to bring some of those models into play, you're immediately making a step change, immediately making a leap ahead in the capability, pretty significant leap ahead, frankly, in the capabilities that they have today. So that, you know, when there are you know, and, and you start talking about hybrid warfare scenarios. You know, when when our when our troops are experiencing working in this grey space, where you know damage to critical national infrastructure can start to you know genuinely affect population dynamics. It can begin to um, affect whether people have access to the internet, which which in turn you know then there are models that exist which start to look at how populations can start to be you know, start to be nudged and moved in different directions based on these type of activities, then you're, you know, then you, you're immediately giving them a much more realistic and representative experience. And those models don't need to be super accurate. They just need to recognize that, you know, when my high explosive round hits that unbundling hub, the internet goes off in this area. Like, so what? You know, what happens next? Um, and that that's, you know, the, the, there are there is so much incremental value that you can begin to add. And then, of course, then it's a, just about refinement. It's about layering more of the of that complex operating environment in and, and, and very quickly, you know, because because you you know, you're you're again, you're approaching this problem through the lens of software. So a, a you know, software platform which 
you know, rapidly and efficiently brings these models and these data sets to bear and can upgrade scenarios in, you know, in weeks, whereas before it would take, you know, years to upgrade, you know, update a scenario for, um, you know, for, for military training. Um, you know, that efficiency aspect to the, to, to the delivery, that really gets you an interesting space because you can start to bring in real data, live data from the real world, as well as existing models that you understand. And then you know you think ahead of that, and then suddenly you're you're moving from a realm where you're dealing with your you know you're you're going from J, you know a J seven scenario a training scenario that I've just described begins to really bleed into to a to a J five and a J three scenario. The environment you're training in is essentially a a copy a, a you know a, um, a a faithful representation of the actual operating environment you're going into. And then it becomes, you know, it's then you can let your mind run away with, you know, the the, you know, that where, where things go next. But it, but it is a, it unlocks a different paradigm in the way we think about the world, um, and and the way that our, you know, our governments can effectively prepare to respond to to this type of environment. Well, can, can I ask just to that point? You mentioned the sort of the the way in which you know we view this and, and see it and experience it. But from a user perspective, you know, how does a user experience this? Is this you know, somebody who's got to train for an operational uh, mission. Well, it could be, uh, you know, uh, obviously for training purposes, it, it will be one that is imaginary. So, um, you, but you might still use a real setting, etc. Um, how do they experience it? How do they? How do they sort of see it and yeah, feel so, it? And yeah, so how do they consume it? So I think yeah. I mean this is, this is part of the you know part of the reality of of, of um, you know I mean modern modern software companies are called the sort of user led design or or or. or um, or user-led development, so it's so it's putting the user front and center of the consumption experience of of, of the capability. So, um, the answer is is ultimately it's tailored dependent on the on the on the situation. You know, for an analyst, for a for a decision maker, you know, it's it's sitting down at a at a computer screen at a um, you know at a laptop, and this can be in a deployed headquarters, you know, running off a a local network or cloud in a box. Um, you know, running through analysis of a particular problem and that and the, you know, the way what they're experiencing is a view of the, um, you know, the topography of that problem. Um, and they can also view it through the lens of networks. They can view it through through different sort of mechanisms of viewing the problem, unpicking the problem, then running scenarios against that. I mean, as part of our work, um, you know, with within the um, the operational decision support realm, We've essentially digitized the entire military planning process. So from right at the start of running your sort of, you know, your 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 combat estimate and your, you know, your military decision making process, MDP as the, as the Americans call it, you know, um, that entire process has been digitized. So you can really start to collaborate really upfront, sort of understanding the situation and how it affects, you know, how it affects you through to running a war game at, at the end of it. So, you know, we have a a sort of at one end of the spectrum, a kind of quite traditional uh, analytical um, consumption methodology. I think my 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 UI and my UX team would be sort of um, you know looking looking at me slightly at this point as I as I sort of massacre a description of the phenomenal <laughs> work they do, um, which is just alchemy. It's incredible. You know, it's it's the most wonderful thing when you see a. Well, it, it, it is so so important these days, though, isn't it? I mean, the UI and the UX. If if that goes wrong, then the rest of it, no matter how good it is, exactly. almost yeah. doesn't matter. It, it, it is. It's critical. You know, it, it's it is the most incredible, you know, it's the most incredible experience when you build a piece of software for a user and they turn around, and they say, 
you know, I can now do something in half an hour, which would ordinarily take me five hours or six hours or, you know, that when you suddenly deliver something that, that you know, that makes us smile. I mean, that, and that's that's really that's, you know, that's what it's all about. It's about giving it's about building capability and, and delivering that kind of thing. So one of the spectrum, it's that, you know, it's it's a it's an it's an analytical user interface. Um, you know, map based or, or, or sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of running statistical scenarios. At the other end of the spectrum, you know, it is it is blending live virtual constructive um, simulation. So that can be consumed through, um, you know, through VR, through AR, through uh, your kind of traditional collective tra- you know, synthetic training, collective training environments where you're you're consuming the synthetic environment via a big simulator or via a um, you know, via a desktop um, you know uh, battle simulation uh, software and we work with a number of different partners to enable you know the reuse of their capabilities so they get all the enhancement of all this realism and efficiency but they don't need to change a lot of the way that they consume unless unless they need to unless they want to so the bottom line is, is that the models that are being consumed by a soldier in an AR headset you know a soldier in a hololens to headset in the field that's experiencing this live virtual constructive blend in their you know in, in out, out out on on patrol on Salisbury plane you know um, in a training in a training scenario the same models that they are pulling on the same the same data sets they're pulling on can be reused for other applications across defense so they could be using and training against the same models that PGHQ are using to plan live operations and we're seeing this reuse happening now. So, so the fact that you have this ecosystem of models and data that are being pulled upon by different applications, this is a complete step change in, in, in the way the defense consumes software and understands how it can reuse capabilities from, from different areas. And of course, there's continuity there, which, is, which can be really powerful. Joe, is this, is this concurrent real time? Because it strikes me that having had the experience of wandering around aimlessly on Salisbury Plain, um, yes. <laughs> that, 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 as a, that as a young squaddy or a young team leader or platoon leader or section commander, whatever, um, as I'm going through the process of, um, of my section company attack, whatever it is, um, and I am reacting to a scenario, the ability to pull that model back through one step, two steps to a, you know, a command post um, so that they are able to see one of two things. A, that the model works, that their planning processes are in place, that their their combat estimate or their, you know, their, their whole um, planning process has worked as required. And B, that the troops are trained as you would assume that they are trained, because there is a difference between, well, this particular unit can do this on paper, and this particular unit has been trained sufficiently to do it in real life, mm-hmm. um, which kind of leads to a broader, um, a, a, at least, observation on my part, is that you're able to show, if that's the case, you're able to show not only the value of the model, and I appreciate all models are wrong, but some are useful, um, but also some models are useful because they are wrong. They demonstrate intelligence gaps. They demonstrate capability gaps. They demonstrate inefficiencies in an organization that you would have assumed, um, had been weeded out through the evolution of constant combat for the last, what are we in 22, 23 years? Um, 
a friend of mine was talking to me about how one of his mates in his unit has been out to Afghanistan at the same time his, as his father had been out to Afghanistan. Wow. You think, wow, two generations fighting the same battle. Um, so we should have weeded out a lot of those um, quirks of our of our militaries. But this strikes me as a real way to to find in real time where those exist, where you might not have thought they had. And conversely, where things work surprisingly well, where you'd always assume that they didn't. Yes. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, this is this I suppose this is the, you know, the, the sort of aha moment, really, which is when you when you see a, a real plan, you know, a, a real operational plan being trained against you know in the in the room next door essentially you know with, with a with a unit that is running through that plan through a games engine through a you know a a, um, a kind of virtual um, simulation of that of that scenario and actually going through their TTPs and and going through their um you know their running through that mission essentially as a mission rehearsal you know they're running through it as a as a training scenario and then all the data that is then pulled off that can then be brought back into the planning process to refine that plan and say hey look you know when we went and tried this for real it turns out that you know you you got all the timings wrong and the vehicles didn't get here in that in that space and time or you didn't account for the fact that you know we had a we had a um you know we had a gunner in the turret that wasn't trained to operate the HMG because he, you know, he hadn't been through his competency assessments or, or, or was out of date, and therefore, you know, we weren't able to bring that weapon system to bear in that in that scenario as effectively as we could have before. Um, you know, th there are, that th you know, seeing that happen is it's it's a you know it's it's a it's you know it is a transformative element of of a synthetic environment, the capabilities that companies like ourselves can develop, but. We should also acknowledge and come back to your your example, Carl, of you know walking around. Hopefully, hope, hopefully not aimlessly on Salisbury Plain, but um, you know, tactical uh, bimbling. That's exactly yeah, what it was. Tactical bimbling, yeah, yeah. Um, on you know, you know, patrolling around is is we we must come back to realities here of of the of the challenges involved in that type of scenario. So it's all well and good doing it within a you know a, a training environment where you have great bandwidth. You know, you have you have good, um, you know, you you have plenty of processing power, plenty of compute power available. And of course, you know, cloud capabilities are now getting to the stage where you can deploy, you know, these these edge computing devices. So you, you can end up with a cloud in the box inside a, you know, you know, right at the front line, right in a forward deployed location to do this type of activity. But the, you know, the, the realities of of bandwidth, of data, of you know the the sort of ruggedization of equipment, doing stuff in the field is always going to be more more testing and more challenging. Um, you know, capabilities are getting improved and getting advanced all the time. But but I think you know, if you look at some of the um, some of the sentiment and some of the the recent literature around the the digital backbone, the idea of you know the MOD pr producing this this. Um, you know, this digital backbone on which to hang off a lot of these capabilities. So focusing on networks, focusing on uh, connectivity, focusing on you know, how to leverage 5G, how to leverage cloud compute. You need all of that sort of, you know, messy back end, um, you know, for, from, for want of a better term, for the, for the soldier in the, 
in the AR headset to really get the benefit of of the software. So so it's got a sort of you know working getting it working in the field is really that that sort of final frontier of capability. Um, but in recent you know recent months we've seen real advances in that area, um, and it's something that that's you know that that is pretty exciting to kind of see come to life. Um, and, yeah, and you're lucky because um, you're in a space where a lot of that you don't you don't have some of the the challenges that you would have had with um with IT systems 5 10 years ago classification issues limited access yeah. um large amounts of of backbone i mean the what is it the android team awareness kit the atac um you know you download that you, you it it works really well is it particularly sophisticated no is it um particularly sensitive no but you can download that in amongst a team you can upload coordinates, basic orders, and you can coordinate a team on the ground in quite austere conditions so long as you have a, a mobile phone that is able to connect to some sort of data. Um, so I think you're really lucky there. I do have a question for you about bias, though, because it always struck me that um, what's the phrase about armies only ever fight the last war that they engaged in, yeah. or they always train for the last war that they engaged in. Um, and And it also strikes me that um you see a lot of training um and and i think this is true across military so it it's not a disparaging remark of any of them you see a lot of training the training is completed there is a a tendency to assume that the capability exists because the training for that capability has been undertaken but you don't really know until someone's shooting the other way mm. um and and you've got to deploy it in anger at a moment's notice when everything is going wrong so you've got the human bias involved you've got machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithms that are running in the background so you've got the benefit of human and artificial biases um and being aware of those and how they may impact your um your capability i think is is i'm assuming is something you've already thought about and if you have how far have you got down that road because it's always a difficult thing to try and weed out or engineer out of a of a solution uh, i it's it's yeah it's incredibly difficult i mean i and and i don't think it's ever possible to um and it may be possible in the future but I, I don't think right now it's it's actually possible to fully eliminate all of that all of that bias that you've talked through like there's always going to be a degree of it i think the, the important thing is firstly recognizing that it's going to be there then trying to to surface that with with the decision makers and 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 this you know, I mean, the, the, you know, your, your, your point, Carl, actually plays to a wider question here, which is around the, the sort of the challenge of adopting a capability like this. So that's that example of bias is a, is a fantastic example of the challenges around adoption and the reality of technology colliding with culture, you know, often in training, you know, a, a, a decision make or, or rather someone in a command appointment you know, that's going through, let's take a, you know, battle group commander that's going through, you know, if they're not deployed in operations, they may get two, you know, big training events, big collective training events where they get to roll their battle group out and, and kind of test themselves in that environment. Now, you know, you, you can, you can bring, you can recognize that there is, there is bias in the, in the algorithms in the system, but you often have to go to the other end of the spectrum which is to dial down some of the complexity that is that would even cause that bias in the first place because the decision maker doesn't want to be seen to be failing mm. 
you know, the commander doesn't doesn't want to be put in a position where they roll off the start line and in, you know, within half an hour of the battle, they're they're in, you know, they're in dire trouble. You know, the the the, the reality of something like collector training is that you, there's always a need to gradually dial up the complexity in the system um, to ensure that the decision maker, that the, the unit that's running through has the opportunity to to build up their TTPs, you know, to exercise themselves in the way that the training objectives suggest and to and to respond to this increasing complexity as they do better and better. You add a bit more in kind of as you go. So often in the synthetic environment, you, you know, you, you've got to be careful what you wish for a little bit. You can present a lot of the of lot, you know, the complexities of the world, but very quickly that can run counter to the culture of of producing very structured training objectives where you have to tick off specific capabilities. So, you know, you can look at you can you can begin to surface and recognize that there's bias in the system in a lot of the algorithms that are that are, you know, um, supporting the delivery of this capability. But actually, you need to start back from the principles of what is that training audience trying to achieve and try and tailor and calibrate the complexity of that environment. So you bring more of that in and with it, you say, OK, I'm going to bring in more complexity. Now it's going to be a bit more bias. And, and, and here it is. And kind of, you know, almost stack it up within within the within the, the you know, within the training environment. Um, and, it, you know, the, the the adoption kind of, you know, the adoption challenge, the the, you know, the culture of adopting these new technologies and and the policies and processes and systems and often, you know, policies, you know, are, are, are a critical, a critical thing to consider when you look at these type of capabilities is, you know, how what policies do we actually have in place? What policies do defense departments, the intelligence community have in place to understand these type of biases and to effectively ensure that adoption of new capability like this can can happen in an effective and, and you know, in a cost effective and efficient way? Um, so it's part of a broader question, which is, you know, you know, successful technology adoption. I mean, people talk about, you know, the, um, software is the new differentiator in national security. You know, hardware is will always be important, but software is the new differentiator in achieving strategic advantage. And, and those who have the advantage in software, you know, will win. They will, you know, they're, 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 they will be in a position to, to, um, to have strategic advantage over an adversary. But actually, the, you know, there is a kind of, comma after that statement which is the you know the organizations the governments the countries that can successfully adopt new technologies and bring in the levers of security and policy and decision making together alongside the technology um, and understanding biases and understanding what they're seeing um, those organizations will be the ones that are successful um, you know as opposed to the ones that look at this purely as a technology problem um, as opposed to one that's more holistic. So I had a years ago um, uh, an analyst who was amazingly um, it was amazingly bright. He was a great influence on on my development as an analyst. And he used to refer to nuclear weapons as the Gordon Ramsay problem, where he would say you can go to the market and you can buy the best produce and you can spend twenty grand on a, a fancy kitchen and you can buy Gordon Ramsay's cookbook, but it's not going to make you the chef at the Savoy. There's a certain amount of inherent cultural knowledge and experience that that you have to have to be able to put this complex set of um, pieces together and turn it into a functioning nuclear device. And and that always stuck with me because you've just described pretty much the same thing. Yeah, it's a it's not the hardware that's going to be 
um, the advantage in itself. It's probably not the software in itself that's going to be an advantage to it. It's it's the culture of an organization that's willing to um, review its policies and procedures, that's willing to change its own structure, that's willing to devolve um, organizational or sorry, uh, decision making responsibility, that's mm. able to open up the information and how it's controlled. That all comes into a, a, a cultural shift and being able to create a simulation where you can do this over and over and over again and get it wrong with very little cost um, relative to getting it wrong in the real world, certainly relative to getting it wrong in conflict, um, seems to be a, a catalyst for cultural change. And I don't know whether you've seen that amongst different clients or whether you've seen a difference based on their pre-existing cultures to who adopts that quicker um, without naming names and shaming your clients into working harder to <laughs> adopt the change. Yeah, it's um, it's a great question. I think you know, I'm I'm optimistic actually, and 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 pretty encouraged. You know, I I, I mean I, I've um you know as a previously a, a scholar of history, and you know historically defence has actually been very good if you know if you sort of treat defense as an as a very complex enterprise customer right a very complex enterprise um compared to to other enterprises that have evolved over the past decades defense has has a rich history of successfully adopting new technologies often it's it's been driven or you know the the, the real kind of um you know that the, the real drive to this adoption has beca- has been because of international events. It's been because of the strategic scenario has shifted. Um, you know, coming into the nuclear age or being able to, you know, to um, be the be the you know be the country that can put satellites into space or being the organisation that can effectively master submersible warfare. Um, you know, there are there are these big capability leaps where where defence has actually you know, pivoted really beautifully, really successfully to to adopt these things. Because if they don't, the 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 the, the you know, if they're not successful, the stakes are so high; they're almost existential um, to survivability of a nation. If if their if their governments can't effectively adopt these technologies, so so historically, I I feel confident, and and I actually feel increasingly confident working with with the incredible. You know, incredible customers. You know, the the these you know, like incredibly well-meaning, hugely um, you know, I- impressive and inspiring um, people in the defense and intelligence community, who who are in fact you know d- dependent on the sort of you know what whatever stereotype that you can come up with, but they are very open-minded. They recognize the challenges of their own system and they approach the adoption of new technology with the curiosity and the openness and the willingness to change um, that, you know, that, that, that one could ever wish for, you know, that they approach it with a real, real zeal to want to drive improvements because they can see the errors in their own system. They can see where the improvements can be made available. And this is a great thing about software, I suppose, is that, you know, it's not unlike a hardware program where you kind of, you know, you, you get paid to do a thing, you go and you go and build it. It takes many, many years of, of delivering capability. It's very expensive. You know, software is cheap and quick in, in relative in relative terms. So 
you know, you can demonstrate value very, very quickly and the user and the customer can see it and go, oh, wow, yeah, that's that's what I want. Or no, I absolutely don't want that. You know, it's kind of idea of failing fast, right? Um, that you can, you know, you can you can make lots of mistakes and you can improve it. But there is, an, you know, I suppose the only the only sort of um, fly in my ointment of optimism uh, at, the, at the minute, you know, and, and this is really consistent across across um, a number of different innovation activities within de, within the defense and intelligence community is that we've kind of got comfortable as, as organizations with failing fast, right? We've kind of got comfortable with the idea that we're going to try and do software, we're going to see stuff breaking, we're going to expose the, the inner workings, we're going to improve it over time, you know, gradual and rapid improvement deliver capability. What we haven't effectively or what I don't I don't feel or I haven't haven't seen consistently at least and there are some organizations that do this very well but not consistently across across NATO and across the US and the UK is when things go catastrophically well so when a innovation project suddenly delivers capability out of the blue or it builds it, it delivers an outcome an answer that is scary or is you know really drives a capability forward suddenly the the mechanism the policy the processes the systems to take that innovation project and to turn it into real capability that is your that's your valley of death right that is your you know how do i how do i exploit catastrophic success this should be in the lexicon it should be in the language in the policy in the thoughts of senior decision makers across defense and government at the moment which is you know how do we how do we point at something and go, yeah i want that how do i get my system to buy it and to turn it into a long-term thing and into a program that can that we can scale and we can deliver across different areas because software has that that uniqueness to it which is that it's easily repeatable you know i, I don't quote one of my investors you know, Mark Andreessen says software is eating the world, but you know it's eating the world because it can replicate very quickly. You can scale it very quickly, very cheaply. It has an economy of scale to the way it's delivered. So we, you know, government must look hard, and and you know, industry have got a massive part to play here in, in making and helping them to do this. But they must look hard at their own systems and processes to when they are successful, how to scale that success and how to turn a science experiment or an innovation project. We see all of these innovation hubs, you know, popping up all, all over NATO. Wonderful thing. But how do you take innovation into core? How do you how do you get when you do really well? How do you turn that into a real capability? That's the challenge of adoption in my mind. That's the that's the central problem that we need to solve at the moment. Yeah, we've got a lot of innovation centers. We don't have a lot of adoption centers. Um, I think you could probably be reading my notes on open source intelligence um, and how that's used, because I think it's a, a very similar challenge. And that's it's not a um, not not a criticism so much as a critique. You, you're right. It's that there's so much out there, so much information out there. I mean, you know, Terry and I were talking oh, a couple of weeks ago about Hawkeye 360 and the and the radio frequency collection that they are able to do. Ten years ago, that is not a conversation we could have had anywhere outside of a very small group of buildings, um, and and it would be a very close old conversation. Now, you can go and purchase that knowledge. Um, that is definitely some catastrophic success there. Question is, how do I get it right down to the guy who's probably a sergeant, maybe a young captain who really needs it? That's exactly right. I think I think it's it, you know the two things that are closely related. I think in terms of the growth of open source intelligence we've seen and the growth of these kinds of capabilities that we've discussed and you know Joe that you've talked us through, and um, you know this strikes me. There's well 
I'm sure you, you, Kyle would love to pepper you all week with questions, but I wanted to sort of maybe wrap up with one question, one last question, which is, you know, how do you see the the future developing? I mean, you, you talked there about the current state of play and the, some of the challenges you've got. Um, what's sort of the future for using things like synthetic environments? And is it is it less about the technology then and more about the policies and the cultures? Um, ultimately, they're all they all have to go hand in glove, right? They 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 you know drive. What we're really talking about is technology transformation. And transformation is a word that's you know that I think is too often used, but you know it's it's transformation of an organisation in order to successfully adopt these type of capabilities. So, you know, as long as as long as um, as long as the environment for innovation exists, and I think you know we th those those companies that are in the UK that are looking, um, you know, those tech startups and, the, and those those small you know those SMEs that are looking to, um, you know, to to build capability for the defence and national security community should take real. Um, you know, should take real notice of the new defence, um, uh, the new defence industrial strategy, the defence security industrial strategy, which is which has been re recently launched. Because, does, that, does that come out of the integrated review? Yeah, the integrated yeah. review. Yeah, yeah. yeah. because you know, mm. that is a real and and the PM, the Prime Minister's commitment mm. to science and technology in the UK. You know, that the, the, the my point is that the conditions in the UK. If you you know if you if, if the policy can be effectively enacted and and you know that the, but the sentiment is certainly there and the leadership is there that the conditions in the UK are are now fantastic for companies to start to look at de delivering capabilities for, for for defense so as long as the conditions are there economically and from a talent perspective and and from an ecosystem perspective connecting with academics and universities and and bringing together you know um bringing together an industrial base which is increasingly diversified a supply chain of supplies which are increasingly diversified and not centered around two or three big primes which are you know which are sort of you know stifling the innovation that can be brought to bear by by smaller businesses and, and slowing down the agility of these type of capabilities then those can you know, get those conditions right then technology will come yeah this has been great joe thanks for taking the time to speak to us and um we'd love to see more of this in action and um yeah and then the future sounds even more interesting in terms of what can be achieved the potential that's there for this type of technology and how it helps with intelligence planning etc yeah hugely impressive um where were you guys 10 years ago when my tactical bimbling needed a whole lot of help <laughs> <laughs> thank you terry and, and carl for the opportunity to talk and yeah let's um look forward to the time when we can sort of meet each other in the in the flesh sounds good i'll wait Thanks, Joe. Cheers, Joe. Thank you.